0: we got a little bit of a, a shorter passage that we're going to cover this morning. We had kind of a busy week, so we're just going to cover a smaller section of Mark chapter 6 this morning. But it's a very timely one in comparison to uh, some of the material that we've been learning about the last couple of weeks. So Mark chapter 6, if you need a Bible to follow along with, there are Bibles at the back there. So please pick one up because that will be helpful as we walk through Uh, what Mark is teaching in this passage this morning. So Mark chapter 6, we're just covering the first six verses of it together. So if you have your Bibles open, go ahead and stand. We're going to read it together. And we'll read from Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Mark writes this. He says, he, that being Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief and he went about among the villages teaching. Okay, you can go ahead and have the seats. As is our, our custom, let's, let's pray and ask for, for wisdom and grace as we study this together this morning. <clears throat> Father, we we come to you now just asking for your wisdom. We pray, Lord, for your word to do its work in our hearts, that it would bring conviction where necessary that Lord, in in light of the remarkable unbelief that the people in Nazareth expressed towards Jesus, I pray that you would expose to us maybe the ways that we are prone to not fully believe in you and not trusting you. And even if for some here this morning, Lord, that it reveals that they have never truly put their, their trust in you, we pray that you would reveal that to them and that you would bring them to a greater love and desire to want to follow Jesus and see him for the worthy, good Savior that he is. Recognize, Lord, that teaching and preaching is such a, uh, an interesting thing to use weak vessels such as myself to try to, to teach this to our, our students. So we pray that you would use my own weakness and my own foolishness to proclaim uh, your glories together this morning, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody loves a good hometown hero story. For me, I grew up in Springfield, Illinois, which, as you know, is home to Abraham Lincoln. If you were to go throughout town there, you would see... Signs and monuments and museums and libraries and streets and all kinds of things commemorating Abraham Lincoln. One of the most well-known, if not the most well-known, of presidents in the United States. See his face on currency. We see his name pop up everywhere. Very influential figure and for a good majority of his life spent it in this town only an hour south of here now if i were in springfield and i were to go across town to uh, the school where my nephews went uh, to, to junior high school i would be able to look up on the wall in the gymnasium and see a franklin middle school jersey of one andre iguodala andre iguodala was a springfield legend still is in many ways he was the Finals MVP in the 2015 NBA Finals, helping the Golden State Warriors win their first NBA championship in 40 years and help them win several more in the years to come. Now, it's just not Springfield, right? We all know that around here we have local heroes and people who are hometown legends, right? We would just go 10 miles north of here. You guys know if we were to look off to the side As you drive into Eureka, you would see a famous number 12 hanging on the baseball diamond there to commemorate one Ben Zobrist, who was the MVP of the 2016 World Series for the Chicago Cubs, who broke the 108-year drought between championships, the longest one in professional sports history. And this guy from small-town Eureka was the MVP of that team. I mean, what are the odds, what are the chances? This is the thing of legends. People love a good hometown hero story. Now, honestly, if anyone was worthy of that type of status, it was Jesus. I mean, you got this guy who is this traveling teacher attracting thousands upon thousands of people healing them, doing miracles, causing the blind to see, causing the lame to walk. Those who had been dwelt by thousands of demons to be put in their right minds. And above that, rumored to be the promised Messiah, the promised Savior and Deliverer of the Jewish people who had, they had been waiting for pretty much since the time of Adam. Right, So if there's anybody who is worthy of status as a hometown hero, it's Jesus. Yes, if anybody, the people of Nazareth should be so proud. People saying, that's our boy. Way to go. You would expect to hear these cheers as he returns to his hometown in Mark chapter 6. And instead... He is received with criticism, with coldness, and even the threat of death. It's far from anything that you would expect from these people. And yet, I think that's exactly what Mark wants to show us this morning from this story. That you can expect people to reject Jesus even when it seems unexpected. That you can and you should expect that people will reject Jesus even when they seem like the most likely people to accept him and embrace him and receive him for who he really is. And I think it's significant that Mark puts the story here. This very well might not be in chronological order from everything that we've seen, but Mark is doing so stylistically here. To really make a point, because what have we really emphasized over the last several weeks, going back all the way to Mark chapter 4? We've emphasized faith and belief, right? The disciples struggling to believe and trust Jesus on the Sea of Galilee when their boat was about to sink and Jesus calling them to have faith and to believe. Mark chapter 5, we see him saving and rescuing all these different people and calling them, especially last week, Jairus, the, the, the woman who had suffered for 12 years, calling them to believe. We're seeing and really uh, commemorating their acts of faith and their belief and their trust in him. And so all of these things kind of set as a backdrop to what we now see in Mark chapter 6, where we think to ourselves, man, Mark is building all this momentum of all these people who are believing and trusting in him. And then it's like they hit a brick wall in chapter 6. The people that you would most expect to receive and welcome and embrace Jesus are the very ones who reject him. Uh, This story stands out like a sore thumb for a reason to remind us that not all receive Jesus the way that he should be received. And so let's look back through it this morning as we kind of think about what it is that Mark wants to draw our attention to. And I think what we see in verses 1 through 3 is where Jesus is given a not-so-warm welcome. Uh, Where Jesus is given a a not-so-warm welcome. So verse 1 tells us that Jesus ventures away uh, from his ministry along the Sea of Galilee. If you remember a lot of the time that Jesus has spent in Mark's gospel so far, he's really done a lot of his ministry right along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. But now he journeys about 25 miles to the south to his hometown here. So if you look at the map, you'll notice that much of his ministry has been spent up in this region, especially around Capernaum, but now he is venturing all the way down south here to. We see it in the red text here, Nazareth, right? So Nazareth is where he is heading to here. Now, Mark never identifies the place where he's going as Nazareth, but we know from other accounts that that's exactly where Jesus grew up. In fact, Mark, uh, sorry, Matthew two twenty three tells us that uh, Jesus and his family they went and they lived in a city called. Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene and what we'll learn about that later is that basically what it would mean is that he would be somebody who was despised and rejected because people didn't necessarily see the Nazarenes as very favorable we learn in, Mark, or sorry, in Luke 4 16 that he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up so Mark, or Luke 4 here is probably the parallel account so where this happens where Mark's writing about it it's actually very insightful for us, but Luke actually tells us that's where Jesus here is going. Now, I want you to think about Nazareth for a moment. Think about Nazareth as kind of your despised podunk town in the middle of nowhere. Now, you guys grow up here in central Illinois where there's a lot of kind of small towns that kind of carry some weight and some stigma to them. I'm not going to name towns because I don't want to offend anybody, but you know that there are some biases or some baggage that certain towns carry, and they're small and little looked down upon, right? So we we can kind of understand that a little bit in our central Illinois culture here. Well, that was Nazareth, right? That was the, the baggage that Nazareth carried with them. It was this small, obscure village that was built into kind of like the, the hillside, kind of rocky and uh, very uh, uneven terrain, and it covered no more than about 60 acres. That's so about maybe 45 football fields, which seems large, but really in that day, that's not a very big place, but it probably would have been home to no more than 500 people. So really small town, even to our standards. But very much a town where we could say everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows your successes, they know their faults, they know the rumors, they know you. And that's going to be important for what we're going to learn here in this story. But we also know that, according to other scriptures, Nazareth is despised for other reasons. In fact, we learn from one of Jesus' first disciples, Nathaniel, back in John chapter 1, when. Phil comes to him and says, we found the Messiah, he's, you know, come from Nazareth, and Nathaniel's response is, can anything good come from Nazareth? You've got to be kidding me. Of all places, this is where you say the Messiah is going to come from. That's what we're looking at here with this type of town. Not exactly the most popular on the map. These people were who they were, and yet they were small-town proud, if you will, of who they were. So Jesus arrives in town with his uh, disciples, and in verse 2, they attend the local worship service at the synagogue there in Nazareth. This would have been Saturday morning, and while Jesus is there, he begins to teach them. Uh, And that's not uncommon for Jesus or other Jewish males to read the old testament scrolls or the scriptures there and give commentary. In fact, if you remember back in Mark chapter 1, we saw Jesus doing this. Uh you could be invited to 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 read and to give commentary on on scripture while you were there, and it's possible that Jesus might have been given that invitation or he just did so on his own accord. It wasn't uncommon for him to to do that or in this culture for anyone to do that. But he takes advantage of the opportunity, and Luke chapter 4 tells us that he was given a section of the prophet Isaiah to read. Very interesting, because he not only reads this, he goes and he sits down and he begins to teach them. And what he teaches them is that what he just read from Isaiah was a fulfillment of him that he fulfills what he just read in the prophet Isaiah, specifically that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do great and mighty works and to take the gospel to all people. Now that's probably what verse 2 is talking about when it says that he taught the people and the people were astonished at him. But before we think astonished and amazed in the way that we've typically seen people respond to him, Mark tells us that in verse 3, they took offense at him. This teaching was not flattering to them. This teaching was not encouraging to them. In fact, it was the complete opposite. They were were upset by this. And they were offended. Uh, But we ask ourselves, in what way were they offended? Well, they were offended, first of all, by Jesus' authority. Jesus' authority. Look at verse 2. It says, their response to him the first two questions was where did he get these things what is this wisdom that he is sharing with us throughout the gospels people walked away from jesus's teaching with one main thing they all recognized that jesus taught with authority an authority that separated him from the scribes and the pharisees And what that basically means is that he wasn't just somebody reading and quoting other people. No, he was speaking as if he himself was giving original ideas, original thoughts. And as we've said before, kind of no duh, right? Because Jesus himself is God. He is the author of scripture. So when he speaks and people marvel at, wow, this guy speaks with authority. Well, yeah, of course he does because he is God. He is the one who wrote it. He's the one who deserves to speak about it. But this does not sit well with his hometown and the Nazarenes, that this hometown boy suddenly sees himself above them as if he now is the one who can speak down to them with this so-called authority that he has. It's kind of interesting that often it's hardest to speak to people who know you the best. Have you ever noticed that? People who know you the best, it's sometimes the hardest to speak to honestly and uh, with courage and boldness. Uh, In many ways, I'm sometimes thankful. I I forget how many years it's been now since I've graduated high school, but we had a really bad class president who has never arranged for there to be a high school reunion. And I'm in many ways kind of thankful for that. Because, you know, trying to explain to people like, oh, you became a pastor. Those people were some of the people who knew me the best. They knew my faults. They knew my shortcomings. And so people don't always receive you for who you are now, even though it's not wrong. It's just life has changed, right? But they see uh, you and who you once were. And they, uh, we see this with family, right? That your family knows your true self. But this is even more amazing when you think about it, because Jesus had no faults or shortcomings, right? This was God's son. This was God incarnate growing up in Nazareth. It's not like he had a bad stigma attached to him. It's not like, oh, there's Jesus. There's the troublemaker. No, he was lack of a better words he was the perfectly obedient child he was the uh, one who was perfectly submissive to his parents he was a great helper to his mom and his dad especially his father in his trade work and we're going to see more of that in a moment All right so this is a pretty amazing thing to be offended by his authority but then they're also offended by jesus and his power verse two says that they were asking themselves how are such mighty works done by his hands now that's kind of interesting because. When people saw the mighty works of Jesus in the Gospels, what was typically their response to him? How did people respond usually when Jesus would perform miracles? What's that? Holy well, they were, they were amazed, right? And they were excited, and they wanted more, right? They didn't care where Jesus got this authority. They, they were excited about it. You notice a little bit of a, a tone of indignation right who is this guy that has been given such authority and such power to do these things rather than celebrating and rejoicing at what god was doing through him they ridiculed him why him why him of anybody such joy and celebration replaced with contempt and even maybe a little bit of skepticism As if, there's no reason that this guy should be doing this. They were also offended by Jesus' credentials. uh, Or we could say his qualifications, right? Verse 3, they say, is this not the carpenter? Is this not the carpenter? Jesus' teaching reflected someone who had been trained in the best schools or mentored by prominent rabbis. He had gone to uh, rabbinic school and had been really well-trained and mentored by some of the best Jewish scholars of the day, but Jesus hadn't. They knew that. He had grown up with them for 30 years, and what they knew Jesus as was a carpenter. That term carpenter really is actually kind of a general word for like a tradesman. He, He... probably worked with wood but actually in this culture especially where he lived there in Nazareth it probably would have been somebody who was almost like more of a stonemason who would have worked with a lot of rock and stone and all kinds of things so think of kind of a general contractor in many ways like that was Jesus and this is not a knock against trade jobs or anything it's just their way of saying this is not the guy that we know it was to say that he was in many ways no better than them Right? Most of the, a lot of people around there had this type of job, and so they're just wondering, why in the world is he now thinking that he is something that he is not? The fact that he was not a trained Jewish teacher meant that they were trying to, in many ways, discredit him. Jesus had no right to be teaching them in this way. And if all that was not enough, there was also his family baggage to throw into the mix, right? They were offended by Jesus' background. Jesus' background. Notice in verse 3 it says, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now, here's here's the reality of what's going on here. On the surface, this may sound like a way of them honoring the fact that Jesus was recognized as the son of Mary. But reality is that this was actually kind of a, a jab against his family. Um, I don't want to get weird here, but this is kind of like one of those your mama type things here. And While it certainly showed the role that Mary played in his life, perhaps indicating that Joseph had already died, it probably had to do with the stigma that was surrounding Mary and Jesus' birth, something that probably never went away from Jesus and Mary. To many, Jesus was considered to be an illegitimate child, who was born out of wedlock. I mean, after all, this is a small town where people know people's stories. They knew that Mary was pregnant with this baby before she and Joseph had actually been formally married. And so there's some scandal going on here. Jesus couldn't be a legitimate child. And Mary's story of the fact that this was the son of God that the Holy Spirit had conceived in her. Okay, Mary. Yeah, sure. And so this stigma surrounding Mary probably went with her and went with Jesus his whole life. In fact, later on, the religious leaders and Pharisees in John's gospel would say, we are not child of immorality. And you're like, whoa, dudes, where did that come from? Well, that's, this is where that came from. There was stigma attached to Jesus, and people saw him as not a legitimate child who was born within the confines of a marriage relationship. He was essentially known as the son of that woman. That's how Jesus was known. And they even bring his brothers and sisters into it. It's not enough, right? Mark shares the names of his brothers and even mentions his sisters here. And this is contrary to what many people teach. Mary was not a virgin her whole life. She and Joseph had a normal family relationship. After Jesus, they had other children. Jesus had brothers and sisters that he would have played with. He would have interacted with. He would have learned with. He was in an actual family unit. Unfortunately, outside of Mary, most of them did not believe in his identity. We learn in that. Most of these guys, uh, brothers and sisters, did not truly embrace Jesus for who he really was. We even saw that back in chapter 3, and it wasn't until after his resurrection that many of them actually came to faith. Uh, Two of those guys that you see there mentioned are James and Judas. Judas would go by Jude. Those are the guys who wrote the New Testament letters of the book of James and the book of Jude. Right? These are Jesus' brothers, and we're thankful that they eventually did come to faith in Jesus. But for the Nazarenes, this was just their way of saying, we know these people. There's nothing significant about them to warrant this type of teaching, this type of authority. Who says you can't go home? Well, Jesus does in many ways. They're not interested in a rags to riches story. There's no such thing as in their culture, the Nazarene dream, right? We think about the American dream where you go from this kind of lowly state to now rising to prominence. Well, guess what? Nazarene, nope, you don't get that. Nope, you're one of us. It's their way of saying, Jesus, stay in your lane. Remember your place. You could even say it's a way of saying to Jesus, who do you think you are? And I think that's maybe an appropriate question for you to think about this morning. Who do you think Jesus is? Are you offended at Jesus and his authority and his power that he claims to have, particularly over your life? that word offended that mark uses here is actually interesting because it's actually the word from which we get scandal or scandalous we think about a scandal being a person or a story that brings shame embarrassment or resentment it's actually the same word used to describe the act of rejecting certain stones that builders would use for construction projects, right? Because not every stone is worthy of that type of project. And so you have to make decisions and you have to reject certain stones. And something that Jesus would have no doubt been familiar with, in fact, probably one of the most quoted Psalms about Jesus, one of the most quoted Old Testament references about Jesus is Psalm 118, verse 22, which says, The stone that the builders rejected has become what? The cornerstone. We see that fulfilled in Jesus. That for so many people, this was their response to him. They were offended at him. They rejected him as a stone that was not worthy. And guess what? Jesus was indeed actually the chief cornerstone. He was the foundation of saving faith. He was offensive. He was rejected. He was the stone that many would stumble over. And so I want to ask you this morning, are you offended by Jesus? Are you embarrassed by Jesus? Are you a closet Christian around others because you are ashamed of who Jesus really is? You would do well, student, to check your heart this morning. You know, you may not speak with the exact same words that the Nazarenes were expressing here in this story, but the condition of your heart a lot of times can say the exact same thing without saying them verbally. And so I ask yourself this morning, what do I really believe about Jesus? Who do I really see him for who he is? And do I accept him and am I excited about that? Or am I really actually deep down offended, embarrassed, and in many ways rejecting him for who he is? What we learn from the story is that Jesus does not take well to this rejection. In fact, the second movement in the story from verses 4 to 6, we see Jesus gives uh, a not-so-fond farewell to these people. The response of the people of Nazareth, at least from our perspective, is certainly unexpected, right? We think about our hometown hero stories. We think to ourselves, Jesus going back to his hometown, he's going to be a hero. He's going to be so well-loved and received. And for him to receive this kind of criticism is quite extraordinary and quite unexpected. And while Jesus probably expected it, he still, in verse 6, marveled at it. He marveled at their unbelief. And that stands in stark contrast to the desperate individuals in recent weeks who responded to Jesus in faith and belief. And the result is that Jesus bid Nazareth farewell, never to return to them again if we look closely, we can see the emptiness of this departure put on full display. Because we see in these verses here that there was just no honor given. No honor given to Jesus. In response to their offensive comments, Jesus quotes a famous idiom of the time. Look at what he says in verse 4. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Right, kind of speaks to what we were talking about already, right? There's nobody who knows you better than the people in your hometown or even your your own household. They know you. He says, you're not without honor anywhere except in your hometown. Or we could maybe quote the American proverb version of this where it says, familiarity breeds contempt. Right, The more you know somebody, the more it breeds contempt and ridicule. You are well-received everywhere except where you are most well-known. And, and so doing this, Jesus also, notice he kind of compares himself to what role here? What role does Jesus compare himself to by quoting this? Who is he relating himself to? In verse 4. He says he is like a what? What? He's like a prophet, right? Jesus considers himself a prophet to his people, which is interesting, because when you consider many of the Old Testament prophets, what were they called to do? They were called to proclaim God's word, and usually it was God's warning to his people for their rebellion, and for their unbelief, and for the rejection And they were doing so most of the time in their own homelands, which, as you can imagine, meant that they were not very popular, and they were not very well received either. In fact, the fate of most Old Testament prophets were that they were disregarded, they were hated, they were persecuted, and for many of them, they were killed. In many ways, Jesus here is foreshadowing his ultimate fate of death. The prophetic honor that Jesus would one day receive was rejection, mockery, torture, and death on a Roman cross. In fact, according to Luke chapter 4, the Nazarenes tried to speed up the execution process by attempting to throw him off a cliffside. So they led him out of the village to the edge of a cliff and tried to cast him off but jesus It just says there that he walked through their midst i don't even know what that would have looked like in that day that would have been awesome to see but is also very sad when you think about his own people being so angry at him to the point of wanting to put him to death we see no honor given we also see no miracles performed right verse five says that he could do no mighty works there and that does not mean that Uh, it was impossible. It's not like Jesus was not able to do miracles there because somehow his power was associated with their faith. And because, you know, we think about like, uh, what's the movie? Oh, Elf. Oh my goodness. We watch Elf so much in our house. The girls love the movie Elf. But you know, like how Santa's sleigh doesn't fly without people like believing in him. Like that's what causes it to fly. This is not like Jesus saying, oh man, if people don't believe, then I can't perform the miracles. That's, That's not at all what he's saying here. In fact, this verse tells us that he, in his grace and his mercy, he still healed a few folks there. So it's not like he was not unable to do so. But Jesus is making a very important point. It would be morally and spiritually inconsistent to perform great acts of grace when the people express contempt and unbelief. Right? So much of Jesus' miracles and his mighty works he was performing were typically because people were receiving him, they were accepting him. They may not have always understand him fully, but they weren't rejecting him to this extent. And so for Jesus to stand there and still heal and do all these forms, uh, these miraculous things, while people are outright rejecting him would be just inconsistent according to his nature. One author says when faith is the prerequisite for spiritual blessings, there can be no miracles without it. I especially appreciate the way Sinclair Ferguson says he says this, where the kingdom of God is rejected, it is inappropriate for the king to share its new life and joy. Right? If you can't appreciate the joys and the benefits of God's kingdom, why in the world would he share that with you? Where the kingdom of God is rejected, it is inappropriate for the king to share its new life and joy. We see in verse 6 that there was no faith expressed. No faith expressed. Verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. Amazement in Mark's gospel was typically a word that was used expressed by the people in response to Jesus and his works and his deeds and his teaching right throughout the gospel people are amazed at Jesus but here is the first and only time in Mark's gospel where Jesus is amazed at them and notices that he is amazed at the level of their rejection at the level at which they disbelieve him For the first time, Jesus is the one who is amazed, which ultimately leads to his departure from the town, withdrawing his presence, which means that there is no presence of him remaining. Their rejection of Jesus leads to his rejection of him. He withdraws his presence from their midst, which means he will see them no longer. He will take his message and he will take his mighty works to other villages who might listen to what he has to say. And if we're honest, this is quite a dramatic end to this very brief account that we've looked at this morning. And so we ask ourselves, what exactly is it that we should learn? What what is it, some takeaways that we need to have as we look at this story this morning? Well, I think the first of which is this. Just because you grow up with Jesus does not mean that you know Jesus. Just because you grow up with Jesus does not mean that you actually know Jesus jesus and student this is really important for many of you here this morning not everyone but for many of you these villagers and even his family members had known jesus for the better part of 30 years think about that Uh, most of you in this room are only about halfway to 30 right so that's only half of your lifetime but for about 30 years people had known jesus and they had seen him they gotten to know him and hear the story of jesus they grew up with him and yet hardly any of them knew the true jesus what kind of warning might that be for those of you in this room today for many of you you have grown up in church your whole life many of you have grown up in christian families not all of you but many of you have you're familiar with Jesus, and we could say, for lack of better words, you have grown up with Jesus. And in fact, I would say this, you'd be even more privileged than the people of Nazareth because you have the fuller revelation of Jesus and his story. Right? You know what the story is in its completion. You know Jesus and his whole ministry that he came to die. You know that he then rose from the dead. You know that he ascended back into heaven that he's coming back again. You know that you've grown up with that understanding of Jesus for your whole life. But do you really know Jesus? even though you've grown up with this teaching and grown up with this understanding, I want to ask you, do you actually know Jesus? Does that change anything about who you are and how you live and what you do and what you say and how you talk to others? Does that even affect you? Or is it just like an afterthought? Yeah, it's just something that's part of our lives. Jesus is a He's a chapter in my story, but he's not really my story. It's familiarity breeding contempt. Do you really love Jesus? Or, if I could ask this boldly, are you secretly offended and put off by him? You do this week after week. You come to Bible studies. You come to church because, well, that's what you do. It's who you are. It's it's what your family does. It's just kind of your routine. You don't really care to. Sure there might be some people who here you are excited to see week after week, but for the most part you'd rather be doing other things. Is familiarity with Jesus breeding contempt in your life? Just because you grew up with Jesus does not mean that you know Jesus. Secondly, spiritual blessings are gifts that come through faith. We kind of highlighted this a few moments ago. But we can learn from Jesus' response to the unbelief of the Nazarenes in the story. That we should not expect to reap spiritual blessings when we fail to trust in Jesus. Now, this is obviously true when it comes to saving faith, right? When we put our faith in Jesus And he saves us. Right. So apart from faith, Jesus will not save us. But it's not as if like that's the end all of our faith. Right. And the benefits that come through it. This is also true for you, Christian, if you're here this morning about your daily life. When we live anxiously, not trusting God's control, when we live jealously, not trusting God's provision, when we live immorally, not trusting God's sufficiency, right? There are ways day in and day out where we are not truly trusting Jesus. And guess what? You wonder why you're struggling in sin or lacking joy? Well, then I would ask you, how much are you trusting God? How much are you truly relying on God? How much are you delighting in his word and his people? How much are you depending on him in prayer day after day? Life as a Christian is constant faith and trust because when you start to trust other things to satisfy you or to comfort you or to fill you, guess what? These spiritual blessings that God promises to you, they're not going to be there. Right? These spiritual blessings of delights and contentment and freedom from anxiety and worry and peace. right? These types of things, those are gracious gifts that God gives to us day in and day out when we trust him. And we notice when we fail to trust him, that's when we start to see things go south. This is not some prosperity gospel message as if, man, you just have to have enough faith and then God will reward you. No, this is this is the proper gospel. This is how God teaches faithfully in his word. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Right when we prioritize the right things and putting our trust in the right things, that's when we see God providing for what we actually need. And then third and finally, student, do not overlook this this morning that in time, Jesus will reject those who reject him. I know that's a very sobering point to end on, but that's exactly where the story ends this morning, and I think so for a reason. You should be sobered by the departure of Jesus from his homeland. It's a reminder to us that though God is patient, <laughs> student, he's immensely patient, there is still a limit to that patience. You cannot reject Jesus forever and just think, okay, it's going to still work out for me somehow in the end. right? That's, that's, that is a game that you are playing with your life. Life is not a game, student. This is not some mulligan that you get where you get to play a redo of your life. This is not some jailbreak that we call out in dodgeball because you got out and you get back in now and you're fine. Note one life that Jesus has given to you so that you would accept him now, today, and stop delaying and stop wasting your life pursuing all the things that you think are going to make you happy. Do not keep rejecting Jesus for you do not know what tomorrow might bring for you. Stop trusting in your grades. Stop trusting in your ability. Stop trusting in your boyfriend or girlfriend. whatever it is that you are trusting in that you think is going to satisfy you in this life. And start trusting Jesus today before he withdraws himself from you forever. Student, that is the greatest warning that you could ever receive. Jesus is showing himself throughout Mark's gospel here to be good. Be gracious to have your best interest in mind. Student, why would you not come to him? Why would you not accept that and receive it? That choice is with you. God has revealed that to you today. The importance is, what do you truly do with that? Start trusting Jesus today before it is too late. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. For a sobering passage this morning. We've seen a lot of very glorious passages about you. Not that this is void of your glory, but it is just very sobering. And it's a reminder to us that not everything in these Gospels is about miracles and mighty grace, but there is still judgment and warnings of condemnation that are for the future for those who reject you. And that is appropriate. We need to hear that. Lord, I need to hear that this morning. Be reminded of what is at stake. We're not playing games in this life. How often we get led astray by things that are distractions that are just, not of any eternal value. And I confess that first and foremost for my own soul this morning that so often I get led astray by those things. And I want to be more about the souls that you have given to our care to help them to see that. But Lord, I can't do that. Your, your, your power and your spirit and your word are the only things that can do that for the hearts of these students this morning. So I pray that you would open the eyes of their hearts to see it as clearly as you make it. I'm unable to do that. Your word must do so. So please, Lord, do that in the hearts of students this morning who have been rejecting you and have not seen you as good and sufficient for their lives. Help them to see that today. Let today be the day of salvation for many of our students. I would ask and pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.